Well, a few, uh, a few qualifiers or perhaps just excuses um, that I'll make now. Uh, the title, I'm afraid, was uh, Doug came up with that one. I, I got the assignment on this. And so knowing that I'm giving you a survey of the history of pedo-baptism and now realizing that I'm giving you the survey of the history of pedo-baptism after you've had barbecue and a beer is a particular challenge. So I feel like we've, like Elijah, you know, we've, We've heaped water upon water on the altar, and now we'll, we'll trust God to do something. So let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, your great grace that you've given to us. We thank you that your grace is a covenantal grace. We trust a thousand generations to you and pray that you would bless us like that. Bless our time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so a, uh, a couple other qualifications here. First of all, I am doing a brief survey of what is um, going to turn out to be more than 2,000 years, so I will just barely be touching down as we go. I'm leaving lots of gaps, obviously. And then second, I'm not intending this as a defense of pedo-baptism. I'm just trying to tell the story and give you a sense of, of how it's played out. Um, and then the last thing is more of a, an exhortation, and that is that I would, con I would urge you to think about, when you're thinking about something like the history of a doctrine, a hi the history of how the church has acted, um, that necessarily requires that your eschatology come in quite a bit. Your eschatology is going to inform how you look at how a particular history has played out in the story of the church. Um, are we trying to recover a primitive and therefore pristine doctrine? Are we trying to go back and find this thing that was um, one, once delivered and, and was embodied by the early church in its pristine form and everything since then has been a, a degradation of that? Or are we watching the church grow in theological maturity as we, as we uh, look to embody what um, God handed off to us uh, in his word? And th those two approaches are going to change this, this story or how you view this story quite a lot. Uh, with that said, then, let me jump into um, where I'd like to begin this, which is um, not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament, but actually looking at the intertestamental period, the, the period after the, the Old Testament was concluded, but before the New Testament begins. So I'm going, um, I'm going to about the first... Um, century, century and a half B.C., right, right in that period. Um, now, at, at, we think of, in the Old Testament, um, conversion to Judaism meant circumcision. That's how you signified being converted, becoming a Jew. But somewhere between the second and first century B.C., the Jews began arguing that you needed to be baptized as well. This is a phenomenon not a lot of people know about, but in the, by, by the first century B.C., uh, you were baptized when you converted to Judaism. Not when you were, if you were the child of a Jewish family, you were just circumcised. But if you were a proselyte converted to Judaism, you would, be, uh, you would receive baptism as a part of the ceremony of becoming an Israelite. Um, there are a couple of different arguments for why that this, um, or a couple of different arguments were given for why they needed baptism. Um, one of the arguments that was that because all of the all of the Israelites had been baptized in the wilderness, all of the Israelites had been baptized in the wilderness. Therefore, for Gentiles to join the covenant, they had to undergo a baptism of some sort to become a part of um, a part of the Jewish nation. Um, another argument was that the Gentiles in being separated from God, were spiritually dead. 
that the Gentiles, having been separated from God, they were spiritually dead and they walked among the dead because they were separated from God. Uh, this is a quote from Rabbi Hillel. Um, so he lives 110 to 10 BC. So we're looking at basically the first century BC. Remember that Hillel is the um, grandfather of Gamaliel, who was the one that discipled Paul um, as a young man, uh, as a young rabbi. Um, and this is Rabbi Hillel's quote. He says, He who separates himself from the uncircumcision is like uh, one who separates himself from the grave. Okay? When you separate yourself from the uncircumcision, it's like you're separating yourself from the grave. You're walking among Gentiles that are dead. You've just walked away from the grave. Uh, that's from the preserved in the Mishnah. Um, therefore, to convert to Judaism was to leave fellowship of the dead to walk among the living. But someone who has been in contact with dead bodies has to be baptized. You have to wash something that's been touching the dead. That is to undergo a ritual washing for the impurity. Numbers 19, verse 11, you see that description of the washing you're supposed to go through if you've been in contact with uh, a dead body. Paul, I think, seems to echo this, and there are, there are elements of Hillel that, that often show up in, in some of the things that Paul is saying. Um, Paul, I'm looking at Colossians, um, and I'm sure you've already had this passage cited to you in terms of connecting circumcision to baptism. But notice that the circumcision to baptism is in the context of separation from death. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised you or raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made, all, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. That idea that moving from um, being separated to God to coming to God is moving from death to life. But in the Jewish conception, that actually required a baptism, a washing of some sort. Um, as a side note, so, so that means that the, the pre-Christ um, Jewish conception of baptism was about washing death off of you. That, that's what you were doing when you, when you moved from being a Gentile to being a Jew. And it's interesting if you think about that in Paul's comments on baptism for the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. I think you can apply some of that uh, to that kind of what seems like a bit of a cryptic um, uh, reference, to the, the idea that you're baptizing for the dead. Well, my argument would be that all baptism was baptism for the, for the dead. For, it was about getting death off of you, and that Paul is alluding to that in, in that passage. And so um, converts to Judaism had to be baptized in addition to being circumcised. Now, this is something, like I said, this is in the second and first century BC that this becomes um, a thing. All converts, male, female, and the infants, the babies in the families that were proselytes that came in, um, were to be baptized, making baptism, strangely, the um, primary um, signifier of converting to becoming an Israelite. I say it becomes a primary one because if you were, um, if you have a bunch of people converting to become Jews, only the men are circumcised, but men and women were baptized. And so it became a universal symbol of, of this conversion. Here's a, a Tanaitic uh, quote from the Talmud that also harkens back to this time. It says that um, when he, referring to a proselyte, says when he has undergone baptism and come up, they would do this in the river, and when he comes up, he said, he is like an Israelite in all, respect, in all respects. When he comes up from the water, that's when he is an Israelite in all respects. And this is the, the significant point here, that proselyte baptism was applied 
to uh, infants, so infant baptism already existed before Christian baptism started. I'd also um, emphasize that, that phrase in, in that, that quote from the Talmud I gave you, that when he comes up, he's like an Israelite. They seem to have really um, um, made, made a lot of that moment of coming up from the water, like that's the moment you become a Jew. And uh, it, it appears to have a connection to um, Joshua 4. Let me start at verse 14. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. Therefore, Joshua, Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass when the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet touched the dry land, and the waters of the Jordan returned to their places and overflowed all the banks, all its banks as before. And it, now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day. You keep having this um, description of how Joshua brought the people up from the Jordan. That's the moment they inherited the land Israel, is when they came, came up uh, from the Jordan River. And then think about that then when you look at... Um, Matthew, um, I have to make sure I actually have my reference. Matthew 3.16 and Jesus' baptism. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and alighting upon him. You have, you have the Spirit descends on him when he comes up from the Jordan and his ministry to Israel begins. And it also, of course, you, we know Joshua. Jesus is just the Greek pronunciation of the Hebrew name Joshua. He is the Joshua that's come to bring them in, into the promised land. So, so you have all of that tradition about baptism that is setting the scene for when the church um, comes uh, comes and, and begins preaching the gospel. And when, when John the Baptist arrived, he shocked the Jews by telling them that the repentance they had been thinking that the Gentiles um, needed to have in order to become Jews, that that repentance was a repentance that they themselves needed. That they, You Jews, you need baptism. You need to turn. There's something that you need to enter into. So it's not just that he's borrowing the con from the concept of Jewish baptism. I think he flipped it on its head. I, I think that he took something that was developing and, and flipped it on its head by telling the Jews they needed baptism. Now, um, I, I want to step into the New Testament. You can see this is a brief survey. I'm, I'm moving pretty quick. Um, remember my qualification at the beginning that this is a survey and not a defense. Um, Jesus took the practice of baptism and then turned it into the sign of the new covenant. In, in the Great Commission, he commanded us to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That's Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Um, and so in this, when Jesus teaches us to use baptism now as the marker for the new covenant, he, he, has, uh, he has used baptism now to become the sign and the seal of the new covenant, replacing what had been the sign and seal of the old covenant, namely circumcision. I'll allude to again that Colossians 2 passage that I, that I um, began with, where you see circumcision and baptism, um, Paul treating them uh, as equivalents, and I'm sure that that argument has already been put before you this morning. Um, so the, the question that has to be answered um, is, 
In this new covenant then, did God continue to include the children in that promise? The Paedo-Baptist argument is that just like the covenant promise in the Old Testament, which was to you and to your children, the New Testament gospel was preached as a message for households, as Peter had preached in Acts 2.39, for the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. You see the continued um, description of the covenant as being for you and for your children, just as it had been in the Old Covenant. Um, it keeps being a promise to you and to your children, and this is why, from a Paedo-Baptist perspective, when there are baptisms in the New Testament where an individual is baptized along with their whole households, um, Lydia, Acts 16, the Philippian jailer, Acts 16 as well, Crispus, Acts 18, when, when we hear that, it seems pretty obvious that it would include um, the babies. Now, I know that the inference of infant baptism from a description of a household baptism, um, that's an inference that gives our Baptist brothers heartburn. Um, it seems like there is a big leap um, that is being made to infer the baptism of infants without the text specifically mentioning um, and the little baby also got dunked. Um, but to, to steal uh, Doug's argument in his book to a thousand generations, for the Baptist position to be true, it would mean that in the middle of the first century, the children of believers stopped being considered members of the covenant. Uh, up until then, they would have been circumcised, and if they had been the children of converts, they would have been baptized. They would, there was infant baptism going before. You would have had to have actually ceased the baptism of the infants. Um, and, uh, and this is, uh, I commend you the, um, Doug's book to a thousand generations where he walks through this, but what is the prime controversy in the book of Acts? It's the question of, um, do the Gentiles need to receive circumcision in order to, um, belong to the church? It's how Jewish do you need to become? That's the, that's the controversy that, that, um, is the focal point in the book of Acts. And if the Baptist position is correct, then it means that during this time, um, you have, you have um, cut out all of the children from the new covenant without anybody saying anything. So notice you, I'm, what I'm, I'm, this is a clever rhetorical thing that I'm doing, in case you're wondering what I'm doing. Um, because the argument against the Paedo-Baptists is there's an argument from silence, right? But I'm saying in the Baptist position, there's a huge, huge silence that the entire nature of the covenant has changed with nobody mentioning it, saying anything about it, and all of the children excluded from the covenant. The Jews who were so concerned about circumcision that they wondered if their, the new Christian converts, the Gentiles, needed to be circumcised are saying nothing about their children no longer belonging to the covenant. So um, if, um, if the Baptist position is true, then at this very moment, all the Jewish Christians were having their children no longer recognized as members of the covenant, and yet Scripture says nothing of this massive change. So either um, you either have no change in the status of covenant children, in which case I don't think that this needs to be explicitly addressed by Scripture. If you're continuing in the way it has always worked, then it makes sense that this is not explicitly addressed, or you have significant change in the status of covenant children, in which case I think it is rather strange that the Scripture does not specifically address this. So that's why I think the burden of the proof would go in the other direction. Now, I'm again, I'm not making a long argument for infant baptism from the New Testament, so I'm, I'm moving on quickly so that we can continue tracing just the history of the practice. Um, infant baptism first shows up in the church fathers at the beginning of the third century. Um, now, I would say there are previous mentions 
citations of the church fathers that precede that beginning of the third century, 200 AD, that precede 200 AD. You have other things that are mentioned and claimed, but I'll, um, they, what they tends to be are descriptions of someone claiming uh, um, sainthood from birth, um, claiming that somebody was a Christian from birth or that they had served Christ from birth. And so the inference then is this is somebody who had to have been set apart uh, as a Christian from birth, meaning they had to have been baptized. I think it's a fair inference, but if somebody wants an explicit mention of a baby getting dunked, you have to go to around 200 AD or so. Um, Hippolytus in 215 AD gives us an order of service that reflected the common practice of churches at his time that explicitly included the baptism of infants. So by 215 AD, there's an order of service that this is what we all follow. This is where the babies are baptized. Tertullian in 200 AD expresses his concern that people are baptizing infants too casually, not understanding the commitment that they have um, to these young saints. His testimony is mixed, I think, for the paedo-baptist cause, because on the one hand, he's skeptical about whether babies should be baptized. He's, he's um, putting a question mark there. But on the other hand, he's a witness to the fact that infant baptism was commonly, commonly practiced by the church at this time, that this is what everybody is doing. And then from, from 200 AD on, infant baptism is more frequently mentioned. Um, I, and, and I would say there's, there's two reasons why it doesn't give me too much heartburn that you have um, from 30 AD till 200 AD without an explicit patristic mention. There's two reasons why that doesn't give me heartburn. One, um, we don't have a lot of patristic works from that time. You're, you're, um, it's like somebody arguing, uh, making arguments about whether King David could have existed as an Israelite because we don't have archaeological evidence of it. Well, um, that, that's, a, um, that's an inference that I don't think is a very, um, a very fair one to make. I think that there was not a lot of patristic, we don't have a lot of patristic evidence um, uh, preserved from that time. As the patristic evidence starts to multiply, then we see it right there, and we see it right from the beginning as it's starting to spread. The other reason why I don't think that that's too much of a concern is that if you think about between um, believer's baptism, or I should say adult baptism, uh, the, the baptism of an adult convert versus infant baptism, when um, when adult baptisms are multiplied, it's because the gospel is evangelizing a people. It means a bunch of people are getting converted. When um, infant baptisms are multiplied, it's because a church has settled in and committed to long-term generational faithfulness. And so it doesn't surprise me that in the, from say 50 AD to um, 200 AD, that first 150 years, What's going to predominate are adult baptisms. And then as we learn to start passing it on, then you start to see more and more of the infant baptisms. Um, the, the, in the third century, um, the skepticism that Tertullian had expressed um, in 200 AD about uh, infant baptism starts to become a full-on crisis. So when, we, when we're seeing references to infant baptism, it starts as this is the commonly accepted practice. But a little bit after that, you start to have this crisis, and the question is, um, should we be baptizing these babies? Should we be baptizing these babies? Maybe we should be holding off on the baptism until they're much older, and, they, and then they're, when they're older and they make that profession of faith, then we should baptize them then. Um, that starts to become a full crisis in the third century, but the motivation for that question, and this is what you, you have to note, was, I believe, a, um, a warped understanding of how baptism works. 
the, the motivation for the delay of baptism was because of the belief that baptism was a one-time wiping of all your sins clean, and that if you have that one-time wiping of all your sins clean, maybe you should hold on to that for the most strategic moment to play that card. All right, so, so you had baptism delayed for that reason. Um, Augustine gives us a great example of this in his um, confessions. He's describing as a child, um, he was not baptized um, for exactly this reason. And he says this, um, you saw, Lord, how one day when I was still a small boy, pressure on the chest suddenly made me hot with fever and almost at death's door. You saw my God because you were already my guardian with what fervor of mind and with what faith I then begged for the baptism of your Christ, my God and Lord, urging it on the devotion of my mother and the mother of us all, your church. My physical mother was distraught. With a pure heart and faith in you, she even more lovingly travailed in labor for my eternal salvation. She hastily made arrangements for me to be initiated and washed in the sacraments of salvation, confessing you, Lord Jesus, for the remission of sins. But suddenly I recovered. My cleansing then, his baptism, was deferred on the assumption that if I lived, I would be sure to soil myself, and after that solemn washing, the guilt would be greater and more dangerous if I then defiled myself with sins. So he was about to be baptized because he had been taken ill and it looked like he might die, and so they wanted to baptize him really quick. But then when he got better, they said, wait, don't give him the baptism now. Wait until he's older, when he's past you know, puberty and sowing his wild oats and all that. Then we'll, then we'll give him baptism. That started to be common within the church ar around this time, but Augustine and others uh, in their spiritual maturity when a little bit later really pushed against this and said this is a faulty way of using baptism. It's something that we need to do um, at the very beginning. Our infants need to be marked as um, servants of Christ from the very beginning. And so by the fourth century, that trend was completely ended and, and paedo-baptism was the norm uh, for everyone. You, if you had children, you baptized them as infants. So in the 5th century, Augustine and others preach heavily against this practice of delaying baptism, and the practice um, dies out. That moves us into the medieval church, and I, I, I'm laughing to myself that I'm moving fast, obviously. I'm skipping over quite a lot, but it moves us into the medieval church. Um, so that by the time we enter the medieval era, the 6th to the 15th century, I mean, that's a long chunk of time, infant baptism is the assumed common practice. This is just what the church did. Um, and here's what it looked like. We have pretty good um, preservation of the, the liturgy that surrounded infant baptism throughout the medieval era. Now, obviously, tons of variation in terms of what century you're in and what location you're in, but I'm giving you what I believe is a pretty common overview of what you would have expected at an um, infant baptism during this time. Um, at the beginning of the medieval era, baptisms were conducted on Easter Sunday and on Pentecost. So you had two days where the baptisms would happen, and it was um, helpful to have it on those assigned days because that, would, that was when you could be confident that the bishop would be home, and the bishop would oversee all the baptisms. Um, so it was always on Easter or Pentecost. The baby was brought forward by its godparents, and I'll, I'll speak some more, um, I'll give you a little bit about the godparents now, because there was an understanding that there was a rebirth in the faith, they took that metaphor and really ran with it. And they believed that in this rebirth, there were new parents that needed to come in, 
where your earthly parents were committed to your physical needs, you needed new parents who took a vow to oversee your spiritual development. Um, and so the godparents came to commit to make sure that you were going to be raised with a Christian education, taught the gospel, and all of that. And they would make vows uh, to, to that effect. Um, the, um, and so at the baptism, the godparents took the child to the font, not the parents, um, and which is a, a, a strange thing, and we're going to talk about that more in a bit. Now, leading up to the baptism, they would perform a series of exorcisms on the baby, um, casting out demons, binding Satan, and freeing the baby from the power of Satan. Um, there was always salt placed under the tongue of the baby, and you had a number of other practices. Sometimes they would give the baby a white candle, or they had a number of like other liturgical um, things that they, they threw in there. The, the baby was baptized in a font at the church where the water had been blessed to prepare it uh, for its function. And then after the baby was, um, they called it the chrismation, anointed with oil, and there were lots of ceremonies that go all around the chrismation, but the anointing with oil. So you had the, the exorcism, the baptism, and the chrismation. Those were the kind of main components of the, um, of the baptism. Although the other thing that the baby also then received was first communion. Um, the baby would receive First Communion. This time, uh, the entire church practiced Pado Communion, and they would receive um, the First Communion in both elements, which is interesting, bread and, and wine. Um, now, this, this is, I'm, again, I'm surveying quickly, but this is basically what it looks like through the medieval era. Until we move into around the 13th century, you have some really peculiar things start to come in, and it has to do with a lot of the... Um, the scholastic theology and their understanding of how the sacraments work and the metaphysical nature of the sacraments, it starts to change um, a number of the elements of this ceremony. For one, um, I, I had said that in the early church, um, um, up until the 13th century, baptism was performed on Easter and Pentecost when the bishop was present to preside over the baptism. Around the 13th century, because of a fear that the baby could die without baptism, because obviously infant mortality at this time is pretty high, and they didn't want to see the baby die before coming to baptism. Um, and because they started to have a view of baptism as necessary for salvation, they didn't want the baby to go without baptism. So um, they, they spread out how often baptisms were offered, and it became um, something that wasn't even attached to a church service. So baptisms were most often conducted as a private ceremony with just the with just the priest, no congregation, nobody else there. It was a significant divergence because of an, um, a different understanding of what was going on in baptism. So no longer is it Easter, and um, and they actually had prohibitions of waiting till Easter for baptism. You were required to get it done within eight days, and it was like going to the DMV, right? You had to go down and and get the baptism knocked out really quick. Um, it had to be within a week of birth. Um, and additionally, um, the, um, and well, and during this time also, when the baptism would happen, it was now just the godparents who took the baby, meaning the parents didn't attend, attend the baptism. It was just the godparents. Mom was still recovering from the birth. Dad was usually getting ready for a party for the post-baptism party. Um, and they didn't even attend the baptism. So parents aren't there. It's just the godparents that take the baby to get baptized. 
Additionally, because of the development of the doctrine of transubstantiation, the elements in the Lord's Supper were no longer given to infants. All right? It was basically when transubstantiation comes in, that's what killed um, Pado communion. They didn't want the elements of the body and blood of Christ to be given to babies because of what could go wrong. And so you stop having uh, infant communion at, at this time as well. Um, now, one of the primary things that you should note in the medieval practice of infant baptism, and I think it really is there in the early um, patristic stuff as well, is that the baptism is treated as a conversion event in the life of the child. If, if you see all the different things I've laid out, you can see how that's there. Um, the child was seen as unsaved prior to the baptism. Um, that's why the exorcisms were necessary. That's why you have to cast Satan out, cast the demons out, because the child doesn't belong to God yet. Um, originally, there had been a period of catechizing new converts. Uh, that's what preceded, you know, in Lent leading up to Easter, you'd be catechizing the new converts. Well, as the church becomes entirely, um, well, as all the baptisms turn away from being baptism of converts to baptisms of children, that period of catechizing turned into this time when you're doing all the exercising of the demons. Okay, so they would exercise the, the child usually three times leading up to the baptism. Um, and um, so when, when Christendom had spread to the extent that there was no new converts, just babies of Christians and the catechisms were replaced by the exorcism. Um, so the baby... And, and, and this grows um, throughout the medieval era where the exorcisms become this really, really important, significant part of the, of the preparation for the baptism. The baby had been Satan's and was being converted by the baptism into a saint. Um, the baby was being brought into a new family. The parents don't matter. The, parent, the parents are not really a part of this. They just gave birth to him. It's the godparents and this new family this is the real thing. And it's, it's really weird, actually, if you dive into the history of godparents, the, um, you get some really weird stuff. So there was a belief that um, in the baptism, the old family kind of ceased to exist to a certain extent, and the new family became more of a priority, the godparents, so that um, the um, prohibitions about like marrying your sister or marrying your aunt or whatever those, in some places, those were no longer enforced against your physical family, but they were enforced against your godparent family. Um, you get some, like I said, you get some really, really weird stuff that starts to happen there, but it's this idea that, yeah, the parents, does, they don't matter. You've, you're, you're moving into this new spiritual family. Um, so by the end of the medieval era, the actual parents of the child did not attend the baptism. The vows were taken by godparents, usually done in a private ceremony, not before the congregation. All right, so that's where we are when the, when the Reformation hits. Um, and that's the lay of the land when the Reformation hits. And I, I wanted to lay all that out because I think a lot of times um, when I hear people talk about the Reformed view of baptism, particularly when it comes to paedo-baptism, the, the common sort of claim is that, well, the Reformers, were they rethought everything. They were radical and re rethinking through the gospel. They questioned everything. They reordered everything in the church until it came to paedo-baptism. And then somehow they kind of just chickened out. They just didn't go far enough. They, weren't, they, they just left that one there. Um, I want to point out how they actually completely overhauled the understanding, the church's understanding of paedo-baptism at this time. They took a, they radically reformed what was going on in that, in that ceremony. They, they did radically rethink paedo-baptism. Um, the reformed uh, understanding of paedo-baptism 
rely deeply on their understanding of the covenant. Uh, you first see this um, Zwingli and Bullinger both work to lay out a foundation for a covenantal baptism. They argued that there was one covenant of salvation that existed through the history of, the, of mankind, a covenant that had been preached to Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and all the Old, Old Testament patriarchs. They wanted to emphasize the unity of the story of salvation by grace through faith alone. Right, that's what covenant theology did, was it unified the story of salvation by grace through faith. Prior to the coming of Christ, circumcision had served as the sign and seal of this covenant, but after Christ, the sign and seal of circumcision had been replaced by baptism. Think again of Paul's interchangeable usage of circumcision and baptism in Colossians 2. This was picked up by other reformers, Bootser, Calvin, um, and Peter Martyr Vermigli, and a number of other picked this up and develop out this idea of a covenant story of salvation and baptism and its role in, in that covenant story. Um, they, they tended to follow Augustine's definition of a sacrament. That is, it's a visible sign of an invisible grace. In the sacraments, God puts forward visible signs that when received with faith, left the believer receiving the thing conveyed by the symbol. Um, they were careful to qualify this by saying that it was not the power of the baptismal water or the elements of the Lord's Supper that brought this about, but rather faith receiving the grace of God directly from God. Um, there's one place in the Institutes where Calvin describes it's like a cup and you're trying to pour oil on the cup, but it's upside down. And when you when you look to his promises with faith, you, you turn that cup upside down so the oil can, can fill it up. And that's what the sacraments do. There are these signs that we can look to and it strengthens our faith and enables us to receive God's promises um, with faith. This covenantal understanding of baptism led to a number of significant changes in how baptism was understood and practiced. Okay? It completely changed the way they were um, understanding paedo-baptism from that late medieval perspective. First, one of the most significant changes in the ceremony was their understanding of what was happening. The medieval baptism was about effecting conversion. Okay, we're converting this baby. We're casting out the, the demons. And they spe specifically said, we're casting out these demons to make way for Jesus so that there's room in the heart for Jesus. Um, the, uh, the liturgy of the medieval church uh, communicated this with the exorcism, something they called the, the exsufflation, where the priest would blow on the face of the baby, and that would, that would enact some of this. Um, the reformers took issue with all of these practices um, because they said, listen, the baby is not being baptized in order to steal it from Satan. That is not what is happening. We are not stealing this baby from Satan. The baby is being baptized because it already belonged to God. It already is God's, and that's why we're doing this. Listen to this um, quote from Calvin. This is from a letter he wrote. He said, This principle should always be held to, that baptism is not administered to infants, that they might become sons and heirs of God, but because they already they are already reckoned by God to that place and rank. The grace of adoption is sealed in their flesh by baptism. Otherwise, the Anabaptists would correctly exclude them from baptism. For unless the truth of the external sign can belong to them, it will be, more, it will be mere profaneness to call them to participation in the sign itself. Nevertheless, if anyone would deny them baptism, we have an instant reply. They are already in Christ's flock and God's family, since the covenant of salvation which God contracts with the faithful is also common to their children. Just as the words say, I will be your God and the God of your seed. Okay, so Calvin is saying, 
We're not stealing them from Satan. They already were God's. We are marking with this baptism what God had already claimed. Therefore, the reformers removed all the exorcisms, the exsufflation, the administering of salt, because they weren't converting the baby. They were claiming a baby that already belonged to God. Second, another significant change in how they're viewing paedobaptism, because this was a covenant that was being made, it was increasingly important that the baptism happen in a community. Okay, because a covenant was happening in this ceremony. This was something that needed to happen with the people of God present, witnessing it and, and partaking in it. Um, this was not something you could do privately with just the priest and the godparents. You needed the parents and you needed the congregation. You needed them all there to be a part of this covenant ceremony. For the reformers, this was a covenant promise given to the parents, which required the presence of the parents, not just the godparents. Right? You need the parents here. Again, this is from Calvin and his institutes. For God's sign communicated to a child as by an impressed seal confirms the promise given to the pious parent and declares it to be ratified that the Lord will be God not only to him but to his seed and that he wills to manifest his goodness and grace not only to him but to his descendants even to the thousandth generation. Accordingly, let those who embrace the promise that God's mercy is to be extended to their children deem it their duty to offer them to the church to be sealed by the symbol of mercy and thereby to arouse themselves to a surer confidence because they see with their very eyes the covenant of the Lord engraved upon the bodies of their children. Right? This is a, it's a promise that's given to the parents that the parents are claiming and they're claiming it before the church. So the parents and the church all need to be there for this ceremony. The reformers believed that the sacraments needed to be accompanied um, by the word. And that you, you see this in Calvin's definition of the sacraments, that the sacraments always need to have the word with them. Therefore, to um, have the baptismal ceremony off in a little corner, just as a, as a sort of ritual that you perform, is to rob it of its, what it's supposed to be. The sacrament needs to be accompanied by the word, and therefore baptism should happen when you've got preaching. You wanted baptism to happen Sunday morning at, the, at church when there's the preaching of the word accompanying the delivery of the sacrament. Um, also, we see that baptism was an initiation into a covenant community, the visible church. And so that meant that you needed the congregation there as witnesses. Um, incidentally, um, I, a little bit of a rabbit trail, but the reform believed that the larger community in this moment of baptism, the church that was witnessing the baptism, that they're participating in the commitment to raise this child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That, that this is a, a covenant community and everybody is a part of this. Um, you're making a commitment to help raise this child, particularly with a Christian education. We're all as a community um, buying in on the fact that we're committed to making sure that there is a Christian education for these children to be raised up in it. Um, this brought in a whole new understanding of godparents. So this idea that it's this new family you belong to, they completely did away with all of that, this idea that there's some new family. They, they, re, um, they sort of reimagined the role of the godparents as people who are, who are joining in on the commitment to make sure that there is a spiritual education for this child. All right, that's what's happening. And, and the, the boundary between godparent and congregation is pretty thin. It's basically the whole congregation really are godparents uh, to this child. Listen, um, this is a charge 
taken from the Genevan liturgy for infant baptism. So this, this is the charge that would have been given during an infant baptism in Geneva. He says, and speaking now to the congregation then, you promise then to be careful to instruct it, it being the child here, uh, in, in all this doctrine and generally in all that is contained in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments in order that it may receive them as the sure word of God coming from heaven. Likewise, likewise you will exhort it to live according to the rule which our, God has, our Lord has laid down in his law, which is contained summarily in two points, to love God with all our heart and mind and strength and our neighbor as ourselves, in like manner to live according to the admonitions which God has given by his prophets and apostles in order that renouncing itself and its own lusts, it may dedicate and consecrate itself to glorify the name of God and Jesus Christ and edify its neighbor." You see that there's a part of baptism, there's an immense um, focus on the education that you're committing yourself to. And um, education being a pretty large, um, a, a pretty large uh, um, word here, describing the whole paideia of, of these children, that the, the pastor in baptizing this child, the parents in taking this pledge, we're all committing to raising this child to make sure that this child receives a true Christian education. Um, so starting and funding Christian schools are not just the obligation of parents, it's what Christian communities do. Christian, and I know that I'm describing your communities. I know that you know, many of you have churches and that you saw right away that you need schools to go with them. And what I'm saying is that I think your education movement in a lot of ways is an overflow of your baptism. Right? It's your commitment to one another to raise up a generation so that we can have the generational blessings uh, of the gospel. You're seeing that and enacting that in your own communities. So let me um, wrap it up with just the final sort of exhortation. And this is coming from the position of a Christian college president. Um, I can just say that if you believe that education is fundamentally about preparing your child to get a job, which is what I always hear, uh, you are believing the lie that's at the center of why the church loses all her children. We as a community are committed to making sure they have a fundamentally Christian education. It's, it is fundamentally about teaching children to love the Lord their God uh, with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love their neighbor as themselves. And we're committing to that when we come and say amen at every single baptism. Let me uh, close in prayer and... I think that was a short history. Right. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great gift that you have given us in your covenant promises, as well as the signs and seals that you use to strengthen our faith. We pray for our children and for the thousand generations that we hope for, and we pray that you would be blessing us, that we would be raising them faithfully to love you and serve you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.